0: I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7 is where we are and we're asking this question about self-righteousness versus self-awareness. If you're... i got to say something. Before I preach this text, let me just... can I just confess something this morning? Man, when I was studying this passage this week, this passage... Left me in the dust. There is so much truth and grace and mercy of God in this. We need this text this morning. We need to be undone by the truth that is here today. We need this. Hear the Word of God, church. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she, begged to wet, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, went, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. By the way, that's Jesus' polite way of saying, Simon, I'm about to mess you up, right? That's a, yeah, that's right, it's, it's coming. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And if you're not sure how much that is, a denarii is roughly equivalent to a day's work wage. So we could say roughly $100 is one denarii in U.S. current dollars maybe a little more. So 500 denarii would probably be roughly uh, 500 uh, or $5,000. It would be about three months wages or something. Or excuse me, 500 denarii would be about $500,000. 50 would be about three months of work. So it'd be about, you know, whatever that is equivalent to. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love, me, love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the large debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. And he said to her Your sins are forgiven And those who were at table with him Began to say to one of themselves Who is this who even forgives sins And he said to the woman Your faith has saved you God have blessing to his Reading of his holy Inerrant and infallible word And I pray he will impact this truth Into our hearts deep I wonder this morning If you knew that everybody in this common ground worship service knew your deepest, darkest secrets, sins that nobody else is aware of except for you and the Lord, what would your reaction be when time to worship came to roll around? Would you come to church? Would you hang your head in shame as you entered the door? What would your reaction be? Many of you may not even come back. That's a common response. Well, in this this narrative today, this woman was known in the town. Now, we don't know who she is, we don't know what she's done. Some commentators think it's Mary Magdalene. It's not what Luke said. This could be a separate occasion. Whoever she was, she was known. When you were a woman living in the Middle East during this time, you had one thing, and that was your reputation. If you didn't have a reputation, a good reputation, you had nothing. Many think she was most likely a prostitute. I think that's feasible because of the item she has, this ointment here, this alabaster jar that she has, right, that, uh, that is filled with a precious thing to anoint with. By the way, uh, when I was in Indiana, I used to pastor the guy that owned essential oils. Does anybody use essential oils in here? Is everybody familiar with essential oils in here? If you don't use it, you should be familiar with it. The man made good money. Anyway, I was, we were at small group one night together, and I just asked him, I said, what is the most expensive essential oil? Does anybody know? Anybody want to take a guess? What the most expensive? Well, you can't answer, Jonathan. I've already been over this text with him, so he can't answer. Anybody else want to take a stab at it? What do you think? What? Frankincense? That would have been expensive for this time period and it's probably still expensive for the day. Sandalwood oil is the most expensive essential oil. It's in many colognes and soaps. Uh, A barrel of sandalwood oil 10 years ago was $7,000 each. And he told me one day at work somebody bumped into that that barrel and spilled it all over the floor. $7,000 just spilled onto the floor. So That was probably the most expensive precious item that she had. But let's rewind the tape before she get in before we get into that. Let me give you some Middle Eastern, ancient Israeli customary things so you can understand this, because there are some items in this text that are a bit foreign to a twenty first century reader, particularly here in, in the South and in Appalachia. First of all, it would not be uncommon for a religious leader like Simon to invite honored guests into his home for a meal. And in, in this invitation, not only is the guest of honor invited, but he would invite others to eat with him. The home would be set up in such a way that the meal would be served in a U-shaped uh, sort of arrangement with the tables. That's because God loves the unique arrangers the most. Right, Coach, right? So, It was a U-shape so the servers could go in the middle and serve everyone, right? They could serve them all right there in the middle of the table. There was not a modern table like you're seated at today. They were down on the ground towards the floor. And as you would get down on the ground, you would have your feet sort of inclined out and away. And you would almost be leaning into the host. The host would be seated in the center of this U-shape. And then the guest of honor either on the right or the left. This begins to make sense as we read other passages where John the Apostle is talked about in his gospel as inclining and laying on his head on Jesus' bosom or his chest because they were seated to eat a meal together. So he would have been inclined and laying over towards him. Not exactly how we eat today. To be quite honest, as a big guy, that sounds like a terrible way to do meals because it's it's easy to go down, but it's a whole lot harder to get back up once you get to a certain age and size, right? Uh, but anyway, so that's how that 's how they would have this set up, and so that was one thing that they would have. Uh, another thing that they would do as well is guests were given invitations who would be seated and served, but only people who were seated at the tables would be served food. however, comma since this is a higher person up like that, and the word gets around a small town, the community is invited. To hear from the guest of honor so they could come in and stand around this u-shaped table the people from the community could stand around and listen to whatever he has to say so it would not necessarily because you know you think about in east tennessee when we invite people over for a dinner party here's what we plan we plan to feed everybody we invite right it's not the way it was during this time they only plan to feed the people who are going to sit at the table There might have been some guests that you felt like not serving for various reasons but that's not how it was back then they just didn't serve the people who were not invited to be seated and so this woman comes in with the community when word came around the invitation went out she could come in it would be odd in our culture to have a dinner party of any kind or to be invited over to somebody's house for dinner and then not to be served but this was not an uncommon practice at that time period another thing that we see here though is there is, a, there is a self-righteousness that Simon has here about himself, doesn't he? Really, if I could say it simply, I would say this. In this story, everyone's being judged, right? The woman who enters with the, with the bad reputation is being judged by Simon. Jesus is being judged by Simon as well. Simon is being judged by Jesus. And it doesn't say in the text, but I would have to wonder what the woman thought about him. And the community is judging for themselves who they think Jesus really is as well. So everybody in this narrative is is under judgment of some kind. The question then becomes, whose judgment is correct? But not only that, but there's another judge here in this narrative as well, one that we probably don't think about when we read this. And that's us. I don't know if you realize this or not, but how you read this text makes a judgment about you. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, here's what I mean. There's all kinds of people who have read and interpreted this passage in a lot of different directions. If you read feminist theologians and feminist theology, so they are reading text under the influence of first and second wave feminism, if you're not familiar with that, come see me afterwards. I've got a stack of books. So I'll hand you, right? And here's what they'll say. This woman's under oppression. She's oppressed by the patriarchal system of her day. And what she needs is deliverance from that. And then you get into intersectionality. Intersectionality teaches that, well, whoever is their, their gender and whoever their, their cultural and ethnicity is, uh, they need to be heard and really based on this text here, Jesus probably should shut his mouth and this woman should listen and Jesus should remain quiet. And so all of these different attempts to, and then of course liberation theology, is they would say, well, Jesus didn't go far enough in the liberation theology. He should have not only forgiven her of sins, he should have taught her how to rid herself of the patriarchal oppression that was on her of the day. And all those interpretations are modern interpretations and modern thinking trying to throw that back on the text and it verges on missing the point of the author. What is Luke trying to communicate in this gospel? What have we been saying all along? Luke is teaching pagans and he's teaching Greeks like us. And what does he want us to know? Jesus is Lord. This passage is about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus judges correctly in this passage, right? So let's talk about this. Let's unpack this a little bit more. First of all, let's go through this and ask our, this, this question. The, let's think about the marks of self-righteousness. This is the disease that has plagued God's people for generations. As long as God has been redeeming a people for himself, for his glory, self-righteousness has been a disease that God's people have faced. How do we recognize self-righteousness? Let me give you some marks. I've got four marks here quickly. First of all, we're going to look at Simon, who is the self-righteous one in this text, because Luke wants you to judge him as the reader. Simon welcomes Jesus into his house. He's going to give him an honor of position there, but he's not going to welcome Jesus into his heart. How do we know this? Well, It was customary in the day that when you invited somebody over and you were being a good host, you would do several things when they come to the door, okay? You would, this is back before Teslas and Bugattis and Ferraris or good old Ford Dodge and Chevy as we drive around here. They had to walk everywhere, which means they had sandals, which means their feet were dirty. It would have been customary to wash the feet of your guest as they come in. So they would be clean and refreshed from the trip. In addition to that, what part of the world are we in right here, right? Is this a place that's like Wisconsin this time of year or a bit like more like Florida? Hot, or I guess Southern California would be a more accurate. It's hot, warm. To refresh your guests, you would kind of anoint them with an oil. We see this in the Old Testament, right? Aaron, after being out in the sun and doing work and ministry just basically pours a whole vat of oil, and you can just see I have this picture of Aaron just drenched in oil trying to get the moisture and the restoration that comes from having his head and his arms and his beard, you know, uh, covered in oil because he's been in hot, dusty, you know, Middle Eastern weather all day. His skin needs refreshment. We as a Tyler family, all of us except for maybe Asher, are plagued with this thing called fair skin. I'm convinced that part of our DNA is guppy because if we were left in the dark too long, our skin is so white, it's almost transparent. You can almost see through it. Like when we're preparing to go to the beach, we have to start putting sunscreen on like a week in advance just so we're ready for when we step out to the South Carolina or the Florida sun. And we love it, but man, the sun damages our skin. I mean, we just, I mean, you probably... if you were to pass me fishing on the lake or the river, because it's when, you know, you don't need to go to a tandem bed in East Tennessee in the summer. Just go out on the lake. You get double penetration from the sky and from the water two times. You'll see me wrapped up. I look like that, uh, I look like that guy from the X-Men who can't be out in the sun. The only thing you can see is eyeballs. I try to cover about everything on me. And I'm sure I'm still going to get skin cancer, but I love to fish. So what are you going to do, right? Nobody lives forever. So it was customary to anoint the skin, refresh them, wash their feet. Did Simon do these things in the text? Jesus said no. Why wouldn't he do it? He wasn't sure about Jesus yet. He's trying to make a judgment call. Is he a prophet? Is he who he says he, people say he is or is he somebody else? What are we seeing happening here? Well, you know, I, I think it is quite possible for us to welcome Jesus into homes without welcoming into hearts. We have seen the close of a lot of Christian bookstores. And uh, I want to say a couple observations I've seen. Many of the bookstores I've seen close with a few exceptions. I've noticed that the quality of items they sold had gone down. What I mean by that is, You know, they used to have good commentaries, Bible studies, stuff that was designed and centered around the gospel and the word. And they would do well. But as time went on, they began to cater their sales to a different crowd. And they began to sell silly stuff, like, as for me and my house, we'll pull for the Tennessee Vols or insert your favorite team, whatever it is. And they begin to sell trinkets of Christianity without any substance to it. And oddly enough, there's not as big of a market for that, right? It wasn't as much of a commitment to that. And so you see a closing after Christian bookstore, closing after Christian bookstore, closing after Christian bookstore, because they're not selling things that are meant to grow Christians, just things that are meant to sell and keep the bookstore open. Because it's possible to welcome Jesus and put trinkets in your home, but have him far from your heart. Second thing we see a mark of self-righteousness is I have reserved the right to judge whom Jesus saves I reserve the right to judge whom Jesus saves. In this passage, we see Simon here. He's seeing this woman come in from the community. He knows her reputation. She knows her reputation. Jesus knows her reputation. Everybody's aware of it. And she begins to touch him. She begins to... You know, cry and just so you know culturally speaking in, as any good Pharisee would know he's aware of what the law teaches he's also aware of what the, the strict leaders of the day would have taught about women and different things like that and did you know one rabbi taught of the day and I'm not saying he's correct this was a predominant teaching of the time he said that it would be permissible for a man to divorce his wife if she let her hair down in public where other men could see that And here you see this woman, not only letting her hair down, but using her hair to wipe Jesus' feet off as a towel. Can you imagine what's going on in this Pharisee's mind with that kind of a teaching and mindset? And plus, let's be honest, you don't just let anybody touch your hair, right? Like if service was over today and I just started walking up to you all that attended and started running my fingers through your hair, we'd have a problem at Grace Baptist Church, right? That would be weird, I'd have a real hard time with Jonathan back there. I guess I'd have to run my fingers through his beard. I don't know. Which would be even weirder, right? A yeah, real problem. Here's my point. Touching of hair is an intimate act. Only the people that are closest to you or you feel closest to are permitted to touch hair, right? In, in, a, in, this, in this particular scenario here, her touching his feet with her hair is an act of, of, of intimacy. Now, not erotic Intimacy an act of closeness and intimacy that she's seeking. So don't get confused on that. So you can imagine what, you know, any self-respecting Pharisee would think. <sighs> you don't let prostitutes touch your feet. You have nothing to do with such people. Wow. What's the matter with this person? Pastor, why you hang out with those people? Don't you know they're boozers and losers down there? How could you possibly go down there and talk to those people? friend. It's the same reason I talk to you. Because those boozers and losers need Jesus just as bad as you do. Right? You don't get to reserve the right of calling out who gets God's grace. And if you think you have that right, you're self-righteous. And you're not even aware of how self-righteous you truly are. Ted Bundy came up in dinner conversation this weekend at at an invitation to a couple of members' houses and and uh, we had a wonderful dinner conversation. That was one of the subjects, amongst many others. As the as it got darker outside, the conversation got darker too. It was wonderful. And I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, for those of you who may not know who that is, Ted Bundy was a serial killer, convicted, known to be a liar. It was it was known back in the late '80s that he made a profession to trust Jesus Christ. Did you know that? And recently, they had a 30-year anniversary like back in 2018. I got questions from church members. Pastor, do you think Ted Bundy is in heaven? And I would always say the same thing. I don't really know if Ted Bundy's in heaven or not. He killed over 30 people. You know? But, I know this. God's grace is sufficient enough to save Ted Bundy. And he has just as much opportunity to be in heaven as you and I. I don't know if his repentance was genuine or not. He was on a he was on, uh, our Sunday school teacher today, uh, Sam, pointed out he, he made an appearance on Focus on the Family where he actually said, I don't want to die, but because of what I've done, I know I should die and I need to die as punishment for my crimes. So he seems to have some kind of understanding biblically of the weight of sin. So I'd say it's a possibility. I can remember another time as a pastor, I, there was a family who had a nephew. And he murdered his nine-year-old stepsister and his uh, stepmom had to have a double funeral caskets together. Most sad situation I'd ever seen. And his aunt wanted me to go down and share the gospel with him. And his uncle, who was also in the church, did not. He wanted him to go to hell. And he wanted him to burn and to be punished for eternity. Well, the aunt was right and the uncle was wrong, wasn't he? We don't get to choose. Who gets God's grace our call is to be faithful to all people the worst of our culture I can't think of anybody worse than Ted Bundy or a child murderer can you and yet we should, we should be we should be joyful to share the gospel with all people by the way I went down to that uh, jail for a year and shared the gospel with that young man he came to Jesus and I got to baptize him behind many locked doors it's a sinking feeling by the way I've said this, uh, well, I'll save that for just a minute. Uh, My my seminary professor used to say this about Baptist churches. He would say, all Baptist churches tell you they want to grow. And all Baptist churches are lying. (laughs) And then he would clarify and say why. He would say, because what they mean is this. Pastor, we're fine as long as you bring people into the church who look like us, smell like us and vote the way we vote and think the way we think on all issues and as long as they don't take my parking spot or sit in my seat during worship service and they meet those other qualifications I'm fine with them well that's a narrow part of the population friends, it's a real narrow slither. no friend we don't get to judge who God saves and who God brings in right third thing about self righteousness the more interested in rules than relationship with god more interested in rules than relationship with god what's simon doing he's standing over he's judging the situation based on the rules and the rules and the rules there's so many rules in a pharisee's life it's hard to see the relationship that's there and then finally with self righteousness you're more interested in preserving your control than demonstrating your devotion to Jesus. There's a lot at stake for Simon. He's built his whole life on this political structure with all these rules. He's got a good reputation in the community because of them. He doesn't want to give those things up. And so he is judged here as being what? Blind to his own sin. And then we see the other person here. Right? A woman of the city, a sinner. When she learned he's there, what's her reaction? She bought an alabaster flask here. She, she brings the most precious thing that she owns to Jesus to use it for him and sacrifice to him. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping. And in the Greek, these words, they're continual action. So it's not like she came in, did this one action of crying and wiping his feet off and then left. I imagine in this story, she stays at the feet of Jesus, weeping and wiping off his feet with her, her hair because of the tense of the verbs here in the Greek. It's a continual action that is being communicated here. She's staying at his feet, showing devotion, and she doesn't care who's watching, right? She is self-aware. What, what's happening with this woman? She, this, this is where we have to get to, right? Am I broken over my sin like this woman? She is broken over her sin. She does all the customary greetings that Simon forewent because he just wasn't sure yet. She does them and she doesn't care whose house she's in. She doesn't doesn't care what rabbi has taught what. All she cares about is showing with an undying devotion to Jesus who he is to her and what he means to her and who she thinks he is. And she don't care who sees it. She's self-aware of who she really is. Because here's what this woman knows. She knows that Jesus will accept her in a sinful state without accepting the sinfulness in her. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus will accept me in my sinfulness as I am without accepting the sinfulness in me. You know what this woman knows? She knows the secret cry of the soul Pastor John Piper is a popular pastor and theologian. He's retired now. He gave this wonderful exploit here, and this is so helpful. Here's what this woman understands. Here's what he says. She understands how great God is in this passage to forgive her of her sins. However great you have sinned is however great your thankfulness is when you understand that and how big you see God. John Piper says this. People are starving for the goodness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis to their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, show me thy glory. It is not the job of the Christian people to, or Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world. When that is needed, someone else can do that. But most our people have no one, no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and the majesty of God. And this woman sees that. She sees how broken she is, how sinful she is. She sees the beauty and majesty of who Jesus Christ is. And she is compelled in that. She loves him greatly, right? See, her heart is spurred on here. She knows the awfulness of her sin. And when we see this and when we're broken like this, we know the awfulness of our sin is exceeded by the greatness of his forgiveness. His forgiveness. The Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Did you know that? He stands day and night to accuse us of what we've done wrong. I didn't say this in the first service, but I'll say it in this one. Since I've been, you know, all pastors go through this. I was just counseling with a pastor the other day. He met with a church member, and they had a notepad, three pages full of everything they didn't like about him. How would you like to sit through a meeting like that? Anybody want to sign up for that? Pastors get to do that kind of joyful thing on a regular basis. And I remember one meeting I went to, a person had a notepad out, started going through line for line, things we don't like about Pastor Travis Tyler. Well, you know, at one point I began to smile. And you may think that's odd, but they had confused me with another pastor from the past of the church. <laughs> and what they were saying was not true and accurate. Because here's the reality of it. Praise God, you know, I, I know I'm not a perfect pastor. I know I'm not a perfect person. I know i'm a I'm a great sinner in need of great grace and salvation uh, I'm glad they don't hear my secret thoughts like Jesus does you know when we when we see this parable here we learn we learn some things here from Jesus don't we you know we learn there are degrees there are degrees of guilt right He says here in this parable, one person Owen You know, three months salary versus a person that owes half a million. That's a big difference. The one truth that he points out here is we're all guilty, aren't we? Whether you owe a little or you owe a lot. Second thing is there's an equality here that bankruptcy, uh, whether it's great or small, we're all equal in what we owe to the living God. Third thing is forgiveness puts us all on an equal field, doesn't it? And then finally, and this is the closing thought I want to Close with us here. There are degrees of response on how much we love Jesus. How we respond to the forgiveness He gives us says something about how much we understand this love and forgiveness that's given Him. Because we have to know that the awfulness of our own sin never exceeds the greatness of His forgiveness. And when we understand that, we become grateful for this forgiveness that we've received. And it spurs us on to a greater love. But the question is, if you could sin by degrees, isn't Jesus also telling us here, you can love the Savior by degrees? What would it look like for a person who loves Jesus a little versus somebody who loves Jesus a lot? Charles Spurgeon, a preacher of yesterday, tried to unpack this question The great prince of preachers writes this. And I'm just going to take excerpts from his quote. There are some Christians that love Jesus Christ more than others. To some who love him much, while others, and I will describe those who love him a little, seem this way. And he goes on to say, so we can see our own portrait. He says, they come to worship pretty regularly. They're afraid of being too enthusiastic about spiritual nourishment. They just take enough spiritual nourishment to stay alive. They rarely to seldom ever make a prayer meeting. When they do pray, and they do have prayer in their homes, it is short, perhaps sweet, but short. They talk much, and they listen little to counsel Scripture. It is possible for some to love Jesus to a great degree and some to love Jesus to a small degree question this morning then becomes what about you you know devotion here in this passage this woman demonstrates for us what it means to love jesus a lot devotion here never cares about maintaining control devotion to jesus only cares about demonstrating himself to the only person that matters i want to draw your attention to the structure of two verses as we close here in this latter part of the text it says here therefore i tell you her sins which are many what's it say church are forgiven dash for she loved much how are they forgiven he said to her notice the construction of the sentence he said to her your sins are forgiven he didn't say, I forgive your sins, did he? He said, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on to say this in verse 50. And he said to the woman, your what? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He didn't say, I have saved you necessarily in this text, even though we know eventually it is the saving power of the cross that does save her, but he hasn't gone to the cross yet. She's she saved the same way Abraham saved, Right? She's saved in a faith in God's grace and forgiveness. What about you? I want you to think about something. There will be a day when you will stand before Jesus Christ. And he will be your judge. Just like in this text today where everybody's being judged. You got one more more judgment to go. You'll stand before Jesus and his eyes will be a pure fire and purity of truth. He will see everything you have ever done from the beginning of your life to the end. He will see every breath you've ever drawn, and he will hear every secret thought you've ever had. You have two options as you stand before him. You can stand before Jesus in one of two ways when that moment of judgment happens. And that one way is you can stand in front of him as a person who has given their life to faithful service to him and devotion. You've lived your life in faith And you will be accepted, you will be approved, and you will enter into glory with him. Or you live your life in failure. You welcome Jesus into your home, but not your heart. You showed enough of devotion so that people in this planet may not question you, but internally, the conversation you have with yourself that nobody hears but you and Jesus, you never really believed. And so you live your life, the time you have, as a failure and not in sacrifice and devotion and faith. Where are you this morning? Are you living in faith? Or are you living in failure? Because the beautiful thing about this text is you don't have to live in failure anymore, do you? Christ calls you now to live in faith and to love much. Father, thank you for this text today. It is so true. It cuts us to the core. In the very place we need to be cut. Lord, those places and areas where we have taken for granted grace, taken for granted mercy, taken for granted all these things that you have given us. Lord, help us to be a people who radically love you, show devotion to you, and we don't care who sees it. We don't care if everybody in Carter County sees it care if our family sees it, or our friends, or our co-workers. Let us love you first and foremost, and let us radically love one another in a way that people cannot explain except from the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, if we're not careful, a story like this just leaves us in the dust. Your oceans of grace, oceans of mercy, the only thing that sustains us so clear here, let us move past mere debates about doctrine and move past thankfulness move to a greater degree of love where we not only are thankful and we not only rightly understand but where we truly enjoy this relationship we have with you we pray these things in Christ's name amen i will make my way back to the to the tiki hut snack shack if you're here today you're ready to trust Christ and live in faith come back here Let's, let's pray let's talk about it. Let's make that happen today for Christ, for you. Or if you just want to pray, you want somebody to pray with you, I'll be in the back as we sing in response.